All right. So, like I said, yeah, I forgot to make a slide. I didn't even think about the slideshow thing until I opened it up for the music, and I was like, whoops. But what we're going to do today, so honestly, I guess, Russell, you could probably turn this off. Uh, we're, I'm going to call this a description of kingdom conditions, specifically in Isaiah. So last week, we looked at um, a lot of the prophecies or two weeks ago from Ezekiel uh, that talk about a lot of the, you know, the, the religious um, and the ceremonial things that happened during the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, along with the healing of the earth, the resurrection of the dead, those kind of things. Uh, Isaiah uh, is just full of prophecies about things that will happen on this planet, things that, that Christ must bring about and will bring about. Uh, and, and it gives us, I, I would say probably, as a book as a whole, the greatest insight into the millennial kingdom of any other book in the Bible um, but there's many things. I mean, you gather a lot of stuff from Micah, from Hosea, from Zechariah, like I said. Uh, we saw a ton of stuff from Ezekiel last week. Jeremiah gives us insight into the kingdom. But Isaiah has a lot. And it, it's, it's great stuff. And so, but this is what I thought we would do today. I mean, th- we're talking like not even a bird's eye view, but like, you know, standing on the moon, just kind of glimpsing into the earth and then moving on. But I want to I kind of uh, like point you to some places in Isaiah that it would be good to Study on your own in the future, really. Uh, point you to a couple of resources if you want to dig more into There's two good commentaries over here that are dispensational viewpoints of Isaiah, which are hard to find because the majority of the church views Old Testament prophecy as allegorical you know, or, or um, symbolic in some way. They try to wrap all these things up into some spiritual thing that's going to be for the church rather than a literal fulfillment. Uh, which is where, where we stand. And so it's honestly hard to find good commentaries, but uh, most of the time it's, it's uh, uh, Christians that, uh, that either stand where we stand hermeneutically or they were Jews and they came to Christ and they know that these things are going to happen. Another thing, just to point out, I stumbled upon this this week. I was actually looking up. I've told you about Michael Vlock before. He's written a few books that I've mentioned to you. But this just came out. It came out so recently that it hasn't come out yet because the copyright date is 2023. <laughs> so anyway, uh, but it's called Dispensation of Hermeneutics. If you want to get a, an understanding of, of, of uh, what a historical grammatical hermeneutic is and how you read the Bible through that lens, I don't know if there's a better. I mean, I've only read the first three chapters but it is so clear, and I just think it's a very good resource just to help you go, this is how you read the Bible. Uh, if you're going to, I mean, this is how, as, as at this church, this is how we interpret the Word of God. Um, yes? Can you say the author's name again? Michael Vlach, V-L-A-C-H, yeah. He was a professor at Masters. I had him at Masters, and now he's over at Shepherd's Theological Seminary, which I believe is in North Carolina. But uh, he's, uh, I just think, just one of the, the top, top, uh, men in the field right now. So anyway, so this is what we're going to do, some Isaiah stuff, and then I want to do Q&A. Like, I, I, we've talked about this, um, and what ends up happening is always just get excited and talk too much. We never have time for questions, but I know there's some questions because I had some submitted to me that were wonderful questions that I would love to uh, address here in the class and talk about that. And then if you have any questions about anything we've talked about, the covenants, Ezekiel, Isaiah, like I said, we've kind of, we were in Revelation. Revelation 20 has three verses about the Millennial Kingdom, and then it just moves out of the Millennial Kingdom into the, the release of Satan from hell and the judgment of Satan, great white throne, and the new heavens and new earth. But the Word of God itself as a whole is like completely kingdom-focused. That's the whole central backbone theme of the entire thing. And, and I told you guys when we read Revelation 24 through 6, it's kind of like, uh, John and God himself are assuming you read the rest of the book. You know, I mean, you're at the very end. You only got two chapters left. And I, he's kind of like, okay, you know what the whole thing's about. Well, here's where it takes place. It's more about timing and revelation, not about content. And so I'm just taking you back to some of these things uh, that the Lord has revealed, uh, specifically the covenants that we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, some of the things in Ezekiel, I only took you to Ezekiel because there's just a, a concentrated, the whole last third of Ezekiel is all about the kingdom. And then Isaiah, like I said, I, I just feel like this is, this is, this is the gold mine. This is the gem of the Old Testament. If you want to know uh, specifics, both about the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, the whole plan of God, the fulfillment of the covenants, I mean, you've got to read Isaiah over and over and over. And even my, my, I read the whole thing this week. 
uh, studied it, made a bunch of notes, and still feel like I know about this much of it. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just so good, rich, and deep. Uh, it's easy to understand, and it's just deep enough that we'll never, you know, plumb the depths of it kind of thing. So, so like I said, we're not going to even try to today. I'm just going to tell you some places that, that are really great to go read and to study on your own. But before you do that, again, you need to know the context that it was written, and it helps you to understand uh, even more uh, what all these prophecies are about. So the book of Isaiah was written by, you want to guess? Isaiah, <laughs> the prophet Isaiah, he prophesied in Jerusalem from 739 to 686 BC. So if, if you guys know anything about the fall of, of northern Israel and, and, and Judah and all that, so he basically was prophesying during the Assyrian invasion and the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, so all that happened while he was saying all this stuff. And within the next, I guess, well, do the math, uh, 80 years, the southern king is going to fall. There's going to be no more Jerusalem, no more temple, no more Israel. And he even talks about that, uh, that coming. Uh, so uh, he was a contemporary of Hosea and Micah. So they were all prophesying at the same time. If you go read Micah, Micah is way shorter, but the same thing. It's just compact, full of just millennial fulfillment kingdom stuff, but it's just really, really short. Um, but he's saying the exact same stuff as Isaiah. Hosea uh, uh, is, is really given um, really a, a, a picture through both his life and then through his prophecies of what the Lord is about to do and is currently doing uh, with the nation of Israel. So, um, and, uh, bo- and, and, and even what he will do in the future with Israel, which is to redeem her, uh, to bring back the unfaithful bride, and to remarry, if you want to say it that way, uh, his, his people. Um, both these short books uh, are about the restoration, return, redemption, uh, future blessing of Israel after their judgment. Uh, and all this, again, Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, all of them, it will all be accomplished by Yahweh God himself through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, um, and, uh, and who is revealed in these books as their eternal king and their shepherd. Um, and uh, Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah all prophesy very directly about the future salvation of Israel and the kingdom promises that have to take place uh, when Christ comes and when he returns. Uh, and, in fact, Isaiah's name means the Lord is salvation. So, I mean, his name itself is, is a demonstration of all that he's talking about and what the Lord will do. Um, Isaiah is quoted over 65 times in the New Testament, far more than any other prophet in the Old Testament. And many times it's Christ himself who is quoting Isaiah to refer to himself and to reveal that he is the one that Isaiah is talking about. Does that make sense? Uh, and in fact, um, I didn't write down the reference, but in Matthew, when he goes to the temple and he reads, he reads Isaiah. And the passage he reads in Isaiah is referring to Yahweh God doing this for Israel. And, and he says, it's fulfilled today. He's like, I mean, he is straight up declaring, I am God. And the, and the God that wrote this is standing before you, and I am the fulfillment. You know, so if he isn't who he says he is, that's some messed up stuff. And that's some bold blasphemy right there. But he is who he says he is, which means we need to pay attention when he quotes Isaiah. Uh, and he does it often. Um, in fact, in Matthew, Isaiah is quoted uh, by Christ or of Christ nine times. In Mark, six times. Luke, six times. And John, four times. So again, the Gospels themselves are full of Isaiah. Acts, he's quoted five times. And in Acts, it's really cool because they use uh, the prophet Isaiah to show that God had foretold about this whole revealing of the church, it was just a mystery until it began to be uh, it, it began to unfold before their eyes. You know, if you read the book of Acts, you watch Peter and all the the disciples. It's, it's baffling them that Gentiles are being filled with the Spirit and they're becoming a part of the kingdom promise. They're, they're, they are experiencing the new covenant, and they they just didn't see that one coming. But the Lord opens their eyes to see that this is in the Old Testament, and they go straight to Isaiah. And Isaiah is the key to seeing that the Lord talked about saving the nations, and that is part of the new covenant, and that is beginning to happen through the church. But it will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. Um, So it's in Acts. Paul loved Isaiah, especially Romans. If you read Romans, 19 times does he quote Isaiah, at least. Uh, Some people would argue a few times more just because of some of the references but what's really cool is uh, Romans 9 through 11 
are the clearest New Testament descriptions of what God is currently doing with the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, what he's currently doing with the church, and what he will do in the future with Israel. And in those three chapters alone, Isaiah is quoted 13 times, and it very explicitly. I mean, so he, basically Paul is like, you want to know what's happening? Go read Isaiah. You want to know where, what's going on with Israel currently at this day? Go read Isaiah. You want to know what's going to happen in the future with Israel? Go read Isaiah. You want to see the best glimpse we have of the mind of God that's mind-blowing, which is what he says in Romans 11? Go read Isaiah. Isaiah is awesome. Uh, I think Paul would say that. Uh, and then uh, say, he, he continues on in, in 1 Corinthians, he quote, or in both Corinthians, he quotes it seven times. Peter quotes Isaiah a lot, confirming that Jesus is the Christ six times in 1 and 2 Peter. So basically, uh, the New Testament is just full of uh, the, 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 the apostles and prophets looking back at Isaiah and going, this is it. I mean, the church, there it is. The, the, what he's doing with Israel, there it is. What he will do in the future, there it is. And so it's just a great book to study and just to read over and over and over. Uh, many of Isaiah's prophecies already have had literal historical fulfillments both in his own days and in the days after his death, which are now history for us, you know, but future for him, but history for us. And so it's also another great prophet because of so many prophecies that have already been fulfilled for you to see how to interpret prophecy. Because we have prophecy, prophecy has been fulfilled, you can see how God did it, which gives you an understanding of what prophecy means and how it is to be interpreted. He prophesied about the judgment, the downfall of Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Syria, Israel, Ethiopia, Egypt, Edom, uh, Air, um, Arabia, and Tyre, uh, which were all literally fulfilled with accuracy in the way that he described it, uh, which, again, helps us to understand how prophecy is to be read. Uh, he prophesied about Sennacherib, who would come and be unable to destroy Jerusalem in Isaiah 37, which was fulfilled. Prophesied about he- uh, Hezekiah's recovery from uh, uh, illness, which was fulfilled. Uh, he prophesied about Cyrus, the king of Persia, and his role in delivering the Jews from captivity after a 70-year captivity, uh, which was fulfilled. Even by name, he called out his name, which is, that's a cool one. I mean, that didn't happen often. Uh, so that, uh, that was fulfilled. And he pro- prophesied a lot about the first coming of Christ, the birth of Christ. We quote Isaiah all the time. Like I said, I mean, joy to the world. That's a song from almost all from Isaiah, you know. And uh, many of the, the quotes that we quote about Christ's birth, uh, being born of a virgin, uh, being coming from Bethlehem, a lot of these things come from Isaiah. Uh, and actually, I don't, know if, I don't think Bethlehem does. I think it's in Micah. Uh, but Micah, yeah. But, uh, but a lot of these first coming of Christ prophecies come from Isaiah, and, and we saw how those were fulfilled. And it gives you, again, a glimpse into how God fulfills prophecy. He fulfills it the way he says it. What he says, he does. And he does it the way he says it. And it's that simple. You don't have to make it symbolic, allegorical, or anything like that. You just keep reading it like you read anything else, and it'll happen the way it says. And so that's what's, it's just, Isaiah's a great, great book. So, in the same way that God has prophesied about future events, which had literal fulfillments, past events for us now, future for him, and we've seen how those happen, uh, Isaiah prophesies about many events that have not happened, that have not been fulfilled, anywhere near the way he describes them. Uh, And they actually can't even be fulfilled in this age. In the age that we live, these prophecies can't be fulfilled in the way that he describes it. Something must take place very drastically to change the earth and to change culture and to change the times before some of the things that Isaiah says are going to happen can't happen. And it has to happen in an age where sin is not eradicated, where death is still possible, where war is still possible, um, and that can't be the eternal kingdom. So it brings you to that place where you look at it and you go, so how and when? You either allegorize and, and make, it, make it spiritual, spiritualize the whole thing and go, well, you know, this, is, this represents this and this represents this and this must represent this. Or you say, there has to be a coming age that is very unique and different than this age that is nothing like the current place that we live that is not the eternal state that these things will take place. And I think the simple answer to that, biblically, is it's the millennial reign of Jesus Christ because that's very clearly when the Old Testament says all these things will happen. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at some of these prophecies. And I just, like I said, we're not digging deep into them. I'm just going to read some of them and get you to read them, open your Bibles and mark them, and then you can go back and read them and go, what does that mean? Because that's where, that's where it starts. That's where the journey begins, where you hit something in Scripture and it just doesn't compute with 
with your understanding of everything so far, and it makes you go, okay, how, how is that going to happen? And then you just keep reading. Keep reading Scripture. Keep letting it, you know, uh, um, uh, wash your mind and change your theology. And, and the answers are there. So it's really, it's really exciting. But um, like I said, there are future things that must happen. Uh, and all of these prophecies, by the way, center around the day of the Lord. Um, they center around God's, Yahweh God's intervention and redemption uh, to restore both Israel as a nation, uh, to redeem the nations, the, the Gentile nations, which is also mind-blowing, um, and to redeem creation itself. And those things are found in Isaiah. So when we talk about, and that's one of the things too, and again, I don't want to get into different hermeneutics. And, and again, if you want to read more about this, go read this little book by Vlock. It's very short, but it helps you. But a lot of the like covenantal theology and um, uh, even things that in like with amillennialism and things like that, uh, again, these are brothers and sisters in Christ, but they're very focused on the salvation of man. In fact, the, the three covenants, the whole, the whole covenantal theology, the covenant of redemption made with God before the foundation of the world, and the covenant of works that was salvation by works, and Adam blew it, and the covenant of grace, this, this covenant that kind of overrides all the other covenants that go into it. All those are really focused on salvation. So it's almost like they, they then try to take those covenants and read the whole scripture of like, how, how does salvation work? Salvation, salvation, salvation. And it's really salvation about the individual, too. It's really focused on the salvation of the individual. But what we would say is Scripture focuses on much, much more than that. The salvation of the individual is just a piece of the huge picture of what God is doing. And if there's anything that I feel like gives you a good glimpse of that, it's John. John 17, when Christ is talking to his Father, and he starts talking about the love that he had before the foundation of the world and the glory that he had, and you see that we're wrapped up in this this story, this love story between the father and the son and this unity they have. And we're just a piece. We're just a piece of that whole big picture. Now, for us personally, our own personal salvation, yeah, that's a big piece. <laughs> I want to be a part of that. And, I mean, that, that's a huge thing. And salvation is central in the Bible. But if you want the main theme, the big picture, it's the kingdom of God. The kingdom that began when he started creation, the kingdom that will last forever as he redeems all of creation. And that's what the whole story is about. And, and our salvation is a little bitty piece in that huge picture, which is so cool. And that's what the Bible's all about. And that's what Isaiah focuses on. And we're going to see some of that today. So the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ is a very important thing because it, it, it's, it's, Christ, it's God fulfilling all the things he said uh, about the kingdom. And, and I was talking to Craig earlier. And the millennial kingdom, I believe, is just a, a glimpse, a foretaste of the eternal kingdom that we will be a part of forever, that we have very little information on because we don't need it here. We don't need to know about that yet, but it'll be mind-blowing for eternity. You know, So open your Bibles to Isaiah, page uh, 4, 549. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, so again, like I said, I wanna, I'm going to set at, at noon, I'm going to stop. So that gives me 18 minutes to read the whole book of Isaiah. All right, so... Uh, I just want to point you to some really important and exciting things. And then I just want to, I want to, uh, I want to do question time because there's probably going to be a lot of questions. And most of the questions will be answered with, you should go read this <laughs> or go listen to this. All right. So Isaiah, basically Isaiah, um, I, I'm not going to tell you what it, everything is about, but um, it starts out with the Lord um, declaring judgment on Israel. The, the, the whole point is, is they've basically become sinful. They've uh, adopted idolatry and they're living like the world and God's basically like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy you. And, uh, but then he tells him to repent and he always, at the very beginning, I mean right out the gate, in the midst of him declaring the judgment that's going to come to them, if you read Isaiah 1 verses 26 and 27, he already gives you the first foretaste of the redemption that will come after the judgment. And he says, I will restore your judges as at first, your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. He's talking about Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem that he's addressing here. Isaiah is talking to the people of the city of Jerusalem, and he's saying, after you've been destroyed, you will be restored and you will be called the faithful city. And Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. So that's the first taste. Flip over to Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. Amazing stuff. He says, and, and then he gives you time markers. Now it will come about that in the last days, verse 2. So these are, this is, anytime you see in the last days or in that day or the day of the Lord, we're talking about future end times. This is, this is Yahweh's intervention, both for judgment 
and for redemption. And so here's redemption. The mountains of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. This is the Mount Everest of the millennial kingdom. It will be raised above the hills. All the nations will stream to it. It won't be as tall as Mount Everest, but we're just saying it's the tall. I mean, he, he, this is a geographical change of, of, of earth. Uh, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. These are nations, uh, people coming out from, uh, from, uh, uh, from around Israel. To the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this is still the, the word of God going out to the nations, and it's coming from Israel, from Jerusalem. He will render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Never again will they learn war. So this is a time of peace and righteousness where there's no need to train for war. There's no need for defense. There's no need for weapons. And so there's, it's a time which, again, I think makes, we talked about in uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, you know, when it talks about the, 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 the final rebellion or they come out and then they burn all their weapons, you know, for, was it seven months or years? I can't remember the firewood. And, and you know, it's like, because they, they, they don't have tanks, they won't have bombs. All that, that is, that is this age. It'll be a time where there are no weapons. And so when there is the final rebellion after the thousand-year kingdom, I mean, they're going to be probably using whatever things that they had at the time. This is just Brian's opinions, by the way. But, but this is true. There, there will be no need for weapons in war, and there will be no more war. Uh, it'll be a time of peace on earth and righteousness, uh, and they will take things that used to be weapons and use them for farming, and it just, it's, a, it's a, um, uh, to show the peace that is on the earth. Flip over to Isaiah 4. Isaiah 4, 2 Another time marker in that day, again, talking about this future day of redemption, restoration. The branch of the Lord, you want to know about the, the work of Christ at the end times? Follow this branch stuff throughout Old Testament. The branch is Christ, uh, the root of Jesse, the branch of the Lord, uh, the, the, the stem that, that comes from David or however they describe it. All those things are talking about Christ and his work. So this is specifically about Jesus Christ. Revelation 5 talks about the root of David. Uh, Revelation 22, the same thing. So this is the, the root of David that we're talking about in Revelation. Here he is in the Old Testament. It says, uh, will be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the earth will be the pride and adornment of the survivors of Israel. Uh, it will come about that he who is left in Zion or remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. Uh, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst. Talking about the, the rebellion that they're in currently when Isaiah is saying this. And he's, he's, uh, he's, he's gotten rid of all of that through this what we're experiencing right now. This over uh, 3,000 years, almost 2,000, what, 400 years of... of, of, uh, of, of um, God's judgment on them. Uh, and it says, uh, And by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, uh, uh, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. So this is the presence of God, just like described when he brought him out of Egypt. He's going to be there present in Israel, in Jerusalem again. Uh, and uh, for over all the glory will be a canopy. And there will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge to protect from the storm and rain. Uh, which, again, actually, that's, that's good to see because, like, in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no sun. Uh, there is, and there won't be a need to be protected from heat. This is probably during the whole restoration of earth after the tribulation judgment of God. God is specifically protecting the people of Israel with his glory, with his presence. Um, and it's just, a, again, that, that has never happened. Uh, and it's going to take some changes on earth for those things to happen, and that's future terminology. Uh, keep flipping. I mean, there's, there's so much great stuff here. Isaiah 6, you know, uh, Isaiah is in the throne room of God. Um, Isaiah 7.14 is a verse we quote at Christmas all the time. Behold, a virgin will be with child, bear a son. She will call his name Emmanuel, which we know New Testament means God with us. He'll eat curds and honey at the time he knows, before the boy knows uh, enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land these two kings you dread will be forsaken. So we always quote Isaiah 7.14 of Christ when he comes. Matthew 1.23 and Luke 1.27-34 quote this of Christ. So obviously this is talking about Christ being born. Um, and again, that's a, a prophecy that's been fulfilled. If you keep reading, Isaiah 9, another great one. This is also quoted in Matthew 4 and Luke 1 and in Matthew 2, talking about Christ, both his first and second coming. This is referred to. Um, and it talks about, 
On the other side, the Jordan, Galilee, the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness, verse 2, will see a great light. Those who live in dark land, light will shine upon them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. Uh, they will be glad in your presence, and with the gladness of the harvest, men rejoice when they divide the spoil. You shall break the yoke of their burden and the uh, staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, uh, as at the battle of Midian. Again, none of this ever happened. I mean, this is quoted of Christ when he was born, but he didn't do any of this stuff. You know, so it's like, when is that going to happen? Either either you spiritualize it, and you're like, well, he's talking about sin, you know, and, and, and that's what, or it's going to happen. He will come, and he will break the yoke of all of their enemies. They will not have enemies fighting them anymore. Um, every boot of the booted warrior, again, if you try to allegorize, like, what do the boots represent? You know, in the battle, in the tumult, in the cloak, rolled in blood. You know, it's like, or it just means what it means and just give it time. There'll be a time when these things will be fulfilled. And it wasn't the first coming of Christ because he didn't do this. He has to return as king and he will destroy his enemies. He'll set himself up as, as king in Jerusalem. And then look at it, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. That's, you know, again, Christmas prophecy, right? He was born. He was given to us. A child was born. It was the Christ. But look at what it says. The government will rest on his shoulders. Did he do that? No. Uh, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. You could say yes on that. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. I mean, you could say all those things. We call him that, but he hasn't done those things yet. I mean, he, he is the Prince of Peace. He brings peace right now, causing us to have peace with God, peace with man. Uh, sin, sin, you know, we have the beginnings of the new covenant. But there's a, he will be the Prince of Peace. He will reign on earth, and, and there will be peace on this earth. And that's why we will call him the Prince of Peace. We haven't seen that yet. And, uh, and th- so there's more to it than just titles uh, that, that refer to the spiritual peace we have. And, look at, and, and then it, goes even, it gets more explicit. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Again, those are things that like, you either got to spiritualize it or you go, no, there's going to come a day where there is no end to his governing. He will be the ruler, the king of kings that will govern all nations, the nation of Israel and all the nations of the earth, and forever, both for the millennial kingdom and then forever. Bless you. So, again, there's a, he, he will be the king. There will be peace, literal peace, not just spiritual peace, but peace on earth. And he will be the prince to bring the peace to the earth. Uh, and then on the throne of David and over his kingdom, so the kingdom of Israel, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. So again, very specific stuff. This one who was born, the child, will reign on David's throne in Israel, bring peace to the earth, and he will govern and rule forever. Again, make it all spiritual or it will happen. It will happen the way that he said it will happen. And that opens up the Davidic covenant and a lot of the other things we already talked about, which have other implications that have to be fulfilled. Again, just saying, this is awesome stuff. Just let it, let it read the way it reads and go, man, that's going to be amazing. When Christ returns and he does these things. Um, and then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. So that's a, that's a, that's a, a, a meaty one that has a lot in it that's wonderful. If you flip over to 10, uh, Isaiah 10, verse 20, uh, you got, uh, it talks about in that day. Again, anytime that you see in that day, in those days, in the last days, mark that, you know, read it, go, what's going to happen there? Sometimes it's judgment. I'm just pointing you to some of the redemption stuff. But there you have the remnant of Israel. And those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Again, the title he gives to himself all the time, talking about he is their God and they are his people. Verse 21, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the Mighty One. Again, we're talking about specific Israel, the nation of Israel, the ethnic people of Israel, the people that have come from Abraham. There is a future for these people. God has sworn many things about them, not us, not other nations. Yes, the Gentiles will partake of all of the blessings that will come through the nation of Israel, but we are never Israel. We are the church. Uh, this is something he has promised to the people of Israel. Again, go read Vlock's book on, on, on prophecy. It's great. Because he, he says, basically, there's three things with all prophecies. There's the one who gives the prophecy, which is God. There's the, uh, the promises of the prophecy and the, the, the people that receive the prophecy. And those things always have to be fulfilled the way he says it. So when he talks to Israel, he's always talking to Israel. The people he promised the prophecy to, he has to do, or the promise itself wasn't true, or the promise giver lied. You know, those are the things that you're going to have to wrestle with. And so just let it read. The promise giver does what he promised, and he does it to the people he promises. The church has many promises, many promises. But the things given to Israel are given to Israel. Isaiah 11, I can't even read the whole... You've got to go read the Isaiah 11 yourself. It's just so good. 
There we have the shoot that springs up from Jesse again. Here's the branch thing. Uh, it's Christ. And man, you talk about things that will happen on the earth during that time. All kinds of great stuff. Not only the peace on earth, not only will he judge, not only will he rule, all those sort of things. He'll slay all the wicked and, and destroy his enemies. One of the real, just, just to point out one thing that's so cool, and I love this verse. Verse 6, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion, the fatling together, the little boy will lead them, the cow and the bear will graze, the young will lie down together, the lion will eat the straw like ox, the nursing child will play in the hole of the cobra, the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den, and they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Either spiritualize it, allegorize it, and just be like, well, it just means peace, or... There will literally be harmony between the human kingdom and the animal kingdom. There won't be fear if your child plays with something poisonous and deadly in this age because it won't be poisonous and deadly in that age. And you got, you got things that used to eat flesh, uh, like uh, where, where is it? Uh, the, the, the lion eating straw like the ox. Again, it's just showing that even, even amongst animals, there will, be, there will be peace. They won't be consuming each other and destroying each other. Um, there's going to be peace that harmonizes even that, you know? It's like Eden-esque conditions, which would be really cool. Uh, Again, in that day, you got on that day, in that day, on that day, uh, over and over during these verses. And it goes all the way through chapter 12. So uh, I'm just going to keep moving because I'm not doing a good job of this. Uh, I'm flipping all the way over to 25 now. Go to Isaiah 25. You missed a bunch of great stuff. Huh? It has to be during the thousand-year reign. There's no other time in, in biblical terminology that it can happen other than the thousand-year reign of Christ. It can't happen now. I mean, go, go put your child next to a cobra's den and, and go watch what lions eat. You know what I mean? It's not going to happen unless something drastically changes from this age. And, again, if you keep reading, there's, there's so many things in here that make it impossible to happen during the new heavens and the new earth. Because, again, we don't know much, but the, the little we know, there is no sun uh, there is no pain whatsoever. There's no death. There's so many things in Isaiah that like, don't fit with that either. So there has to be a time on this earth where, that is completely different than now, that is not the eternal state once sin is done away with and there is no more death, no more pain, no more crying, no more sun, no more temple. Again, I mean, go read Ezekiel. There's a temple. New heavens, new earth, no temple. Uh, read Isaiah. There's sun mentioned many times. New heavens, new earth, no sun. So we don't know much, but the things we know... None of this is possible in that time either. It doesn't mean that there's not implications that happen during that time. There's things that happen during the millennial reign that continue to happen in the new earth. But there's things that can't continue to happen in the new earth because there's another change, you know? And so there's a, a difference. So anyway, uh, but yes, this, to answer your question, all these things must take place during the millennial kingdom. Many of these things will continue to take place on the new, in the new earth after... The very, very end. Does that make sense? Uh, but they, some of these things, it's impossible for them to take place currently. There's no, there's no possibility. Except for God to, 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 to intercede and to do something, which is to send his son. I mean, that's the, the easy answer. Christ will return and these things will happen. Uh, and, and they'll happen the way that, just the way he says it here. Uh, Isaiah 25 through 27. Actually, 24 to 27. You talk about, this is kind of like, this is like the revelation of the Old Testament. That's, that's, uh, I heard someone call Isaiah 24 the revelation of the Old Testament. It describes like Armageddon, it describes God's judgment at the end. And then 25 and 26 and 27, you want to get a glimpse into the kingdom? Read those chapters. Like, like I said, I'm going to keep moving. But again, over and over, in that day, in that day, it's Judah, the gates, the city, the, the temple. There's uh, a song, the, the new song that is sung, which again, if you want to get some gold out of Scripture, go, go just, just do a, a Google search or a Bible gateway search of new song and go read all the times they talk about a new song and see what it says. It's all about the salvation that God will bring through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ. Read the Psalms that talk about new songs. Read the New Testament that talks about new song. Read what Isaiah talks about the new song. This is stuff, we've already read it in Revelation many times. They sing a new song in heaven. And the new song is always about the redemption that comes through the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Both for the church, for the tribulation saints, and for everyone. And we sing that forever. So there's some gold here, uh, but we're going to keep moving. Um, Isaiah 24 through 27. Just mark that one down and go read it later. If you flip over to Isaiah 30, um, 32, here's some really good stuff again that's just a very good description of the millennial kingdom. In Isaiah 30, 
19 through 30-ish are some just, like I said, very meaty verses. Uh, again, talking about the people in Zion, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They will weep no longer. Uh, he'll be gracious to them. So this is talking about their redemption. Um, uh, it talks about uh, them seeing him. Uh, he'll give them rain, verse 23. Uh, the, uh, again, I wanted to point this one out because of the, the description of the, the uh, vegetation and the, the, the habitation of the earth. You see what the return of Christ and the millennial conditions will be like. So there, there's going to be uh, rain, you know, where there was, you know, you look at the Old Testament curse. When he talks about the curse given to Israel, there's always famine when they're not following him, that sort of stuff. So here, you, this is just a glimpse of the blessing. By the way, that's another just point, just a tangent real quick. Uh, you know, with, uh, and again, this isn't dogging our brothers. They're covenantal. So don't ever hear it that way. We're just saying we're not. We're not that. We don't read the Bible that way. But, um, you know, they, they see all of the, the blessings I'm sorry, the curse fell upon Israel. Now the church receives the blessings, you know, from Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 28. But the thing is, is those things were specifically named for Israel. Israel did receive the curse that came from God because of their rebellion and their rejection of him. I mean, we've watched it. It's playing out to this day. But they must receive the blessing. They have to because he said they would. If you go read Deuteronomy 28 through 30, I mean, he lays it out. He gives the whole history of Israel right there at the very beginning. Before he even brings them into land, he says, here's what you're going to do. And he lays out the whole history. And part of that is the blessing will come to them. It has to. So the Mosaic Covenant, when you read the blessing, those things must come. And here, I think you see the, a little glimpse into the millennial kingdom. And you see the blessing of God being given to Israel exactly like he describes it. It says, he'll give you rain for the sea, which will sow in the ground, uh, the bread from the yield of the ground, and it will be rich and plenteous on that day. Your livestock will graze in a roomy pasture. So we're talking about like abundance of vegetation and, and, and fruitfulness of the land. Uh, we already talked about in Ezekiel in 47 as the water comes out and it turns the desert into a, a fruitful abundance. You know, you have the trees of life that line the, the, the river. You got the salt sea that becomes fresh with swarms of fish in it. You know, again, this is just what the Lord does. When we talk about redemption, we're not just talking about your specific soul salvation. We're talking about the redemption of all of creation. And this is a little bit, just a taste of what that will look like. The ox and the donkey, the work of the ground, the uh, uh, salted fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork on every lofty mountain, every hill. There will be streams of running water on that day, a great slaughter. When the towers fall, the light of the moon will be the light of the sun. The light of the sun will be seven times brighter. Again, you got the sun and the moon. you got all these animals. So, And you even got um, uh, 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 a great slaughter, which means there's still the potential for death. We've skipped over a lot of those verses, by the way. There's many things in here that talk about still the potential for death during this time, which means, again, it can't be the new heavens and new earth because their death is done. It's cast in the lake of fire. There is no more death. But, again, that's just a, a, a cool glimpse. You can keep reading there. If you keep reading, I mean, you see things like the rock of Israel and, and uh, names of Christ. Verse 32, behold, a king will reign righteously. Again, this is Davidic covenant stuff, and this is Jesus Christ. So there is going to be a king. Princes will rule justly. So there's going to be princes ruling and, and governing. Um, uh, they'll find refuge from the wind, shelter from the storm, uh, streams of water in a dry country. So again, you're talking about an earth that still has effects from the fall that that won't happen in the new earth. But you have the protection and the abundance of God and, the protect, uh, and, and, and Christ reigning as king. So great stuff. Oh, man. Sorry, 12. Uh, Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 is another wonderful place that just talks about physical conditions of the earth uh, when Christ reigns. It brings in new covenant theology. It brings in Davidic covenant terminology. It talks about this highway of holiness, which, again, is I, I skipped right over it in Isaiah 19, but it's talking about the redemption of Assyria. Assyria will be called his people. Egypt will be called his people. The redemption and the salvation of Israel extends to the nations. God never says, Egypt, my people. God never says, Assyria, my people. Those are his enemies. In the millennial kingdom, they will be his people, and he will be their God. They will set up monuments of worship in Egypt for God, Yahweh God, and the words of God will be on their lips. It's It's amazing. And again, it has to happen in a time that's not the new heavens and the new earth and is not happening now. Even currently to this day, I mean, we call Egypt and Assyria his enemies, but they will be called his people. The nations will be called his people. And again, if you keep reading, uh, there, there's, there's other places that talk about the nations of the earth, not just Egypt and Assyria. And 
Uh, it's, it's just wonderful. Isaiah 40, actually 40 to the end. Just read the whole thing. <laughs> From 40 to 66. I mean, you want to know about the new, uh, you want to know about what Christ will do. Isaiah 40 to 66 is just solid gold. And almost all of it, not all of it, there are some judgments in there. Almost all of it is just blessing, 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 promise, promise, promise. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. I mean, mixed in there, you got the, the Isaiah uh, 52, 53, the suffering servant. We quote that all the time, especially at Christmas and at Easter. Um, but, uh, but then mixed in it, you got all, all that that suffering servant, the shepherd of Israel, will do. Uh, and again, it's just so much. I, I, I know this is crazy to even try to do this in 20 minutes, but there's just so much good stuff here. All that being said, uh, I do want to take some time because, like, like I said, uh, I did have some questions came in. I thought they were great. Um, and I'm sure there are other questions. And, you know, we could study the Millennial Kingdom for forever. And it would never, it would always be wonderful. We could never exhaust all the things uh, that he says here. Um, Isaiah 65, by the way, one last little thing. There's a little glimpse, a little bit of a, a new heavens and a new earth uh, mixed in with a lot of things that will happen in the Millennial Kingdom. And again, that's something that a lot of people stumble over because they're like, well, isn't this describing the new heavens and the new earth? But uh, first thing, it can't be because there's things there that, are, that would contradict Revelation, which the easy answer is just, it's like all prophecies. You know, uh, uh, very often when we talk about prophecies of Christ, especially like, uh, what is it, Zechariah 9, where it talks about him coming in on a donkey's colt. Is that 9? And, and then in the very next verse, it talks about him judging his enemies. You know what I mean? And, and, and the, the first half of that verse happened when he came the first time. The second half, or the second verse, happens when he comes the second time. Now, uh, uh, Zechariah is prophesying about the coming Christ. So for him, all of his future. For us, we know there's a, at least 2,000-year gap between those two verses. Does that make sense? And Revelation helps with that because Revelation gives us a lot of time markers that we don't know in the Old Testament. But when you read Isaiah 65, it talks about the new heavens and the new earth. But then it talks about Jerusalem, which there's going to be a new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. And it talks about men who die. I mean, you know, in verse 20, death is still around. New heavens and new earth, there's no death around. It's not a contradiction. It's just Isaiah's prophesying about this future, what Christ will do when he comes. It's kind of like the pan-millennialist, you know, the people that are like, well, it'll all pan out in the end, and Christ will make everything right. Well, that's Isaiah 65. Christ will come, and it'll be perfect. But what we, what we learn in Revelation is there's the millennial kingdom perfect, and then there's the new heavens, new earth perfect, and there's, they're, both, they're both perfect. They're both great, but there's a difference in the perfection. Um, and, and the difference is, is the new earth has no death, no sin, uh, no further rebellion, no idolatry. All of it's gone. No pain, no sorrow, no tears, no sun, no temple. God with man, man with God forever. You know, uh, The millennial kingdom, also perfect but different. Um, you got, you got the, the, the potential for rebellion, which will happen. You got the potential for feigned obedience and submission to God, which will happen. Uh, you got the potential for death and sin, which will happen. But you also have perfect conditions. Righteousness, peace, justice on earth, no war, no famine, all that kind of stuff. Does that make sense? So anyway... That's it in a way too quick nutshell. All right. Yes. A list? Yeah. Like all the cool stuff? Yeah. <laughs> I just think, just go read Isaiah 40 to 66. Oh, this verse and this verse. Yeah, actually, if you want that, like, come see me later. I, so something I do in my Bible, you don't need to do this. I mean, it just it's a mess from your perspective. But for me, this is uh, the key. So everything that's blue is about the return of Christ and the things that he must do when he comes to earth. And so when I read Isaiah, it's just I got blue all over the place, you know. Uh, orange stuff is judgments and things that he will do in judgment. Uh, pink. Stuff is like, man, I don't even know what that means. Uh, <laughs> blue, blue stuff. But say, anyway, so you could, you, you can come take a look, and all these blue things are things that have to happen. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> pink is like, that's awesome. What in the world, you know? Like, <laughs> there's, and that's the thing too. Listen, any any person that has studied the word ought to tell you that you can read it and go, I know what this means, and at the same time, I have no idea what this means. That doesn't mean that that it's undiscernible. Everything the Lord has given to us is revealed to us for a reason and to know it. I mean, he wouldn't have revealed it to us 
And, and think about this. God created language, and he created us, and he communicates to us through this book. And everything that's in this book was meant for us, for life and for godliness, for, for us to, to be refined, to know him. So everything revealed here is for us, and it is understandable and discernible, and the, uh, any Christian can read it and get it, okay? He doesn't take a seminary education or anything like that. And at the same time, we can study that we could read this a thousand times a year, and it would only get greater, deeper, bigger, and mind-blowing. And the more, I feel like the more I study it, it's not the less I know. I grow in understanding. I grow in my love for him and my desire to follow him. But I also grow more and more in, in, in the understanding that I know so little, so little. And I feel like it just, because the greatness of it just keeps getting bigger, you know? So my knowledge is good doing this. And then my understanding of who he is is doing this. And I just feel like, you know, used to, I was like, I know this much and he's this big. You know, and, and now it's like, I know like this much and he's like through the roof. And so it just, you know, that's what I'm saying. So, yeah, it's unfathomable. It's unbelievable. It's, it, there's things there that I have no idea. And at the same time, but he will do what he says he'll do. And it, it's easy to read. It's, it's common language that you can understand. Nothing, nothing is beyond your comprehension as a child of God. Now, you know, like he said in there, I mean, without the spirit, if you got this, you know, if it's just all pretense and feigned following him and all that, yeah, I mean, there's going to be things that you'll, you'll never grasp because you, you don't even grasp the gospel. The gospel is foolish, foolishness to you. So who cares about the coming kingdom? I mean, you need to be born again, you know? So uh, you got that part of it too. So yeah, just come see me later. I want, I want to get some of these questions because these are good. Let me, let me read a couple to you because I think these might be something that all of us are thinking about because these are things I have to wrestle through to, and, and they were good questions. And then uh, you can ask a question or some questions. I mean, we may even need to do this another week too just because it's, it's, it's helpful. So here's a great question. So how does, now, if you weren't here for Ezekiel, a lot of this is based on what we talked about in Ezekiel 33-ish to the end. But how does the reinstitution of animal sacrifices for sin and trespass guilt offerings, which we read about, uh, if you were here that week, we talked about there's going to be a temple, there's going to be sacrifice, blood sacrifices in that temple, and there's going to be guilt and sin offerings given during the millennial reign of Christ. So that, that, there's things there. You're like, okay, now how does that work? Because I thought Christ was the perfect sacrifice. And, all. and that's what the question is. How does that integrate with the teachings in Hebrews, uh, especially Hebrews 4.16 and then chapter 7 through 10? Now, uh, and in Ephesians 5.26. Let me read Ephesians 5.26 too. It says, Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. So it's just all these things in Hebrews are centered around the sacrifice of Christ being the one sufficient all-time sacrifice. There's no more need for sacrifice, right? Because Christ is the sacrifice. Um, it would be best to go read uh, Hebrews 7 through 10. Uh, it also talks about Christ being the high priest in the line of Melchizedek. So he's the high priest forever. There's no more need for a high priest. Uh, he's ratified the, the new covenant. The old covenant has been fulfilled. Christ is the fulfillment of that. The new covenant is now ratified in his blood. Uh, he is the perfect sacrifice. I'm just kind of just running through the Hebrews here. Um, and it's the sufficient sacrifice. Um, uh, but I think actually in the Hebrew, so do flip Hebrews 10. Look over there real quick. Because I think the answer is in the text itself. Um, and and, and I'll, I'll explain in a second. Um, Hebrews 4, by the way, as you flip to Hebrews 10, talks about we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God. Um, he sympathizes with our weaknesses, all that. So we have a perfect, permanent high priest. We have a perfect, permanent sacrifice of Christ. Um, but if you read in Hebrews 10, it talks about the law being a shadow. It's talking about Mosaic Covenant and the things given to Israel are a shadow. Um, but this is the explanation, I think. Uh, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the thing. So, again, I know you're diving right in the middle of it, but Christ is the form. Christ is the sacrifice. The Old Testament sacrifices were a shadow pointing forward to the true sacrifice that actually covers sin. The Old Testament sacrifices, the Israelites had to do it because they were being obedient to God and what he told them to do. But like he's already said, the blood of bulls and goats has never been able to actually sanctify or actually justify. God can, and they should do those sacrifices because that's what he told them to do. But it was a shadow of the one, Christ, and the only sacrifice that actually, in all actuality, does atone for sin. Does that make sense? So that's kind of what he's, what he's already said. And he says, 
Um, so they were shadowed not the very form of the things. They can never buy the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So that's it right there. Those sacrifices can never sanctify or justify or make perfect. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. So again, if the sacrifices were sufficient in themselves to actively forgive sins, then there would be no need. They, they would have done it once and been done and... That would have been the sacrifice that we remember and do communion for, you know, but that, that wasn't it. But it says this, verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year by year. That was it. The whole point of the sacrifice, not, no, 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 I won't say that. But in those sacrifices, one of the points, if you want to say it that way, is a reminder every year, sin requires blood. There must be a sacrifice for our sins. We can, it's, it's, there's, there's no way to God except through sacrifice. So that when he came, they should have recognized this is him. Does that make sense? The sacrifice. Which is what we do now. We look back on it and we see that is the sacrifice. Um, so I think the answer is in that. The future sacrifices in the millennial kingdom by the Levitical priests of the Zadokian line that we talked about, the the, the, the priestly covenant, the line of Zadok that he talks about in um, Ezekiel, are not, first thing, Mosaic covenant sacrifices. The, the, Mosaic, the, the, the Mosaic covenant is fulfilled. That's done. This is, this, these are just new sacrifices. He doesn't say anywhere in Ezekiel, go back to uh, Deuteronomy or, or, um, or, or Leviticus and re-adopt all the things that I told the old nation of Israel. We're talking about future sacrifices we know very little about outside of Ezekiel 40 through 42 and, and some of the end of Ezekiel. But there will be sacrifices. But those sacrifices will have this purpose, this same purpose. And maybe other purposes that we don't know, but at least this purpose, that they will be a reminder of sin year by year for the people that still need to be saved by faith or through faith by grace of the one who is in the Holy of Holies, for sure, reigning on earth as king and great high priest forever on David's throne. But there are still people on this earth that need his grace and need to be saved by his blood. And I think in a time when there is very little, there's no war, there's, there's very little death, there's peace and righteousness on earth, and all the nations are coming to Israel to worship him, even if it is pretense like we just talked about, people will need to know and be reminded that he died for your sins. And that sacrifice that happened thousands of years ago is the only thing that can redeem you from your sins. And so these are just prescribed sacrifices given during that time that are a reminder year by year that there is a true sacrifice. And I think that's the, the answer to that. So it has nothing to do... Uh, he's still the great high priest that is reigning as high priest during that time. There's, there, there is, a, you know, nothing in Ezekiel ever talks about a high priest. It just talks about the priests of Zadok that are the only ones allowed to come into the Holy of Holies and probably see Christ face to face, their great high priest who is in there uh, interceding for them. Um, and uh, even the other Levitical priests, if you go read, and uh, it's in Isaiah, right? Oh, I'm forgetting. But there's, it, it distinguishes between the, no, that's in Ezekiel, the priests of Zadok and the priests the rest of the Levitical priests, because of their rebellion back in the day, part of the consequences during the Millennial Kingdom is they're not allowed to be the ones to go into the Holy of Holies anymore, but they still have part of the temple. They're, they're still blessed by God. So there's consequences and blessing for the, the, the Levitical priests that went astray, um, but there's blessings for the priests of Zadok. So it's to remind them during the Millennial Kingdom that their sin led to his death. It's to remind the people in the Millennial Kingdom that they need cleansing of their sin and it requires blood. It's to remind them in the Millennial Kingdom to point them back to the perfect sacrifice that satisfied God's wrath and truly cleanses them from sin. Those sacrifices in the Millennial Kingdom, they have no effect to actually redeem. They point them to the one who did redeem them and remind them that they need to be saved by faith. And it's not just the fact that you're alive during this time that saves you. You need Christ. And the great high priest and the sacrificial lamb that these sacrifices will point to will actually be dwelling in his full glory in the Holy of Holies in that temple where they go to make their sacrifices. And that's just cool. Very similar to the glory of God filling the Holy Holies in the Old Testament. But this time, it will be the physical presence of Jesus Christ himself who has come back with the scars on his body. He's in that temple. So that's my best biblical answer for that one. If that wasn't sufficient, just keep digging. You just got to keep reading. All right, here's another one. Where does Scripture say these sacrifices are merely memorial in nature? That's a good question. 
the supper does oh, and, and this has to do with something I said. Uh, the, the Lord's Supper doesn't claim to be an offering for sin. It's expressly a memorial. How can these two actions be equated? So I think this came from my terminology using something that Charles Feinberg said in his commentary. And it was just a, a, a way to think about it, all right? That we, I mean, we just did it, right? We just ate the bread, drank the cup as a memorial, a, rem, a, a remembrance of what he did. That's why we do that every, every time. It's a time to, to examine ourselves, to find the sin, to confess that before the Lord, to reaffirm our faith in him. To, you know, I mean, that's, that's what communion is all about. We belong to him. He died for us. It's easy. It's easy to, to drift and to stray. It's easy to entertain sin. And those moments are sobering moments for the church. Do you remember what he did? Do you remember what you are in him? Do you know what it costs you? That's what should be going through our mind. That's why we pray. That's why Shane says that every week. To, to This is sobering. You don't just go in there and eat some grape, drink grape juice and eat nasty bread. You're in there to, to reaffirm in your mind and remember what Christ has done for you. And that ought to be, we ought to walk out of there like, yeah, I'm changing today. You know, every time. That's what that's meant for. So I was saying, in the same way that those, that's our reminder and our remembrance of his sacrifice, the millennial sacrifices will be the same sort of remembrance. I think better, a better word would be what he says here. I mean, he says reminder in, in Hebrews 10. But it's, it's, they, are, they are sacrifices that are representative of the sacrifice of Christ. In the same way the Old Testament sacrifices were. Um, so, so if the Lord's Supper analogy wasn't a good analogy, that's fine. But that, it was just a way to, to think about it. It's just to show you, just because there's future sacrifices, doesn't, is, it doesn't mean Christ's sacrifice was deficient. Or that they're, we're going back to some old law. It's just to say, they're just reminding us of the sacrifice. The only sacrifice that matters. Uh, this is a good question too. And then I'll, you can ask some questions. How does the segregation of foreigners by circumcision of flesh and heart in Ezekiel's description of the temple in Ezekiel 44.9, which I'll read to you in a second. How does that integrate with Paul's argument in Galatians, uh, especially chapter 5, Colossians 2, 6 through 17, Romans 2, 28 through 29, Philippians 2, uh, 3, 2 through 3. And that what, what this person is referring to is Ezekiel 44.9, and I think we talked about this last week, says, Thus says the Lord God, no foreigner, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in the flesh, of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. So the, the idea is like, so circumcision is done, and, and there's no, you know, we're talking about a, a millennial kingdom. How do, you, how do you reconcile that with what Paul says in Galatians and in Colossians? What he's referring to there, if you read in Galatians and Colossians and Romans and Philippians, all of it's about... In Christ, circumcision is of no value. You know, Galatians. That's a whole book of Galatians. I mean, you read the whole thing. It's like, if you go back to the law, that's a bad move. Because you're going to work your way. I mean, you, if you basically reject the blood of Christ and you try to go back to works, especially after knowing Christ, that's terrifying. And, he, and that's why he starts out the letter. So it's, it's a terrifying beginning. And most letters start out with greetings. You know, it was Paul. It's good. To, I miss you guys. Galatians is like, if anyone says anything different than what I told you, they're damned to hell. I don't care if it's an angel. I mean, that's, that's how Paul starts the letter. Because it is terrifying to reject Christ and to return to the law. So, obviously, no way is that going to be happening in the millennial kingdom. And that's not what's happening. But that's, that's what this is about. So, he, you know, in, in Galatians 5, Paul says, if you receive circumcision, Christ is of no benefit to you. So, it's a good question. So, then why, are he, why is... He's talking about uh, people that were uncircumcised in the flesh coming into the temple in Ezekiel 44. Or in Colossians 2, same thing. Um, uh, in, in Colossians 2, it talks about the circumcision uh, made without hands, the circumcision of Christ. Now, again, you have to know what Deuteronomy 30, that was, that's a, that's a uh, Deuteronomy 30, uh, God talks about one day that he will circumcise the hearts of the Israelites so that they are sin-free and able to worship him. So that's all Paul's talking about there. So that, that has nothing to do with physical circumcision. He's talking about a new covenant promise that God talked about in Deuteronomy 30. Romans 2, 28, again, talking about the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Same thing, new covenant promise. Deuteronomy 30 is a really good place to go and read about that. And then at, in Philippians 3, we talk about the, the false and true circumcision. The, the answer to the question, so how does that, Ezekiel 44, if there's no more circumcision and returning to the law is an, anathema, then, uh, then, then, you know, how, how do you talk about circumcision or people that are uncircumcised come to the temple? It's the context. If you go read uh, Ezekiel 44, 
the context of that verse is not the millennial kingdom. It's the uh, it's what's happening currently. Uh, if you read it, I've got to find it. Ezekiel forty four. Uh, starting in verse 5, it says, The Lord Yahweh said to me, Son of man, mark well and see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say concerning the statutes of the house of the Lord and concerning all of its laws. Mark well the entrance of the house with all its exits and sanctuary. Now, and then he tells Ezekiel, you go talk to your people. He says, you shall say to the rebellious ones, the ones that are being judged currently by God in, in Jerusalem, uh, to the whole house of Israel, and the one, I guess, you, honestly, it'd be the ones in Babylon that are part of the, the remnant that escaped the judgment. But he's saying, you go say to the rebellious ones, thus says the Lord God. You want to know what God says? Enough of all your abominations. Enough, O house of Israel, when you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart, so they weren't his people, uncircumcised in flesh. They weren't obeying the, the sign of the Mosaic. They, 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 these were foreigners that should have nothing to do with your worship, and they were filling the, the, the nation of Israel with idolatry. Even my house, he says, when you offered my food, the fat and the blood. So these are the sacrifices, the Mosaic sacrifices. Uh, and they made my covenant void. This is an addition, in addition to all your abominations. And you have not kept charge of my holy things yourselves, but you have set foreigners to keep charge of my sanctuary. So he's saying, you have, you have done Everything the opposite of everything I called you to be. You were called to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. You were the ones that were supposed to point the world to Yahweh God. And instead, you brought in people that weren't my people, people that didn't worship me, and brought in all this idolatry and all this evil. And that's why you are currently destroyed. That's the context. And he says in verse 9, thus says the Lord God. So you want to see what it's going to be like when, God, when Yahweh changes things? He says, no foreigner, uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh, of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. There will be no unbelievers. And there will be no desecrating his temple. And there will be no idolatry. Because he will be in charge. Does that make sense? So that's, that's the context there. Basically, God's saying, things are going to change. And there will be no uncircumcised foreigner. There's going to be no one there that doesn't belong to me when I am in charge of this temple that I just revealed to you. So... All right. You got any questions? You want to ask from anything we talked about? I got more, but I just thought I'd give you a chance. Because <laughs> there's, there's another really good one. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they could know that. They should know that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the question is, um, why didn't they not believe? Oh, the same reason that you or any of us don't believe. Not, not you specifically, but the same reason God came and died for our sins and we didn't believe. The people who watched him do miracles in front of him didn't believe. It's, it's what Shane talked about there. This sin, the deceitfulness of sin, the hardness of heart. You can see things happen right in front of your eyes. I mean, think about the Israelites that God led out of Egypt, and they saw the Red Sea part and all the, the miracles in Egypt, all that stuff. And then, I mean, it took them days to complain and grumble and not believe that he could do what he said he would do. And that's just who we are. I mean, you can give someone all the evidence in the world. You could have God speak from heaven, and they won't believe. If, if they're not given the ability to believe. If, huh? Yeah, they got, and they got the word. We have the word of God more sure than any miracle ever given. I mean, think about that. Seriously, I mean, we take this for granted, right? It's just, it's like we got 17 of them at home and, you know, and we give them out to people to throw them away in a second. But God, who spoke exist, all things into existence, has revealed his nature, mind, will, ways. He has revealed himself and his own word here in written form. And this is not enough for almost every person on this planet. We are the remnant. There are very few that it's like the word of God is more than enough for me. And it contains everything that I would ever need for life and godliness. Very few, even in the church, believe that. We all want more, you know. But there's not more. And even if we're given more, we wouldn't believe. Because it's not, it's what Shane just talked about. It's not a lack of information. It's a lack of, it's a lack of belief. It's a lack of 
of, of ability. Good question. Yeah. Yeah. It has to be. So even even Jesus says, uh, you know, I mean, the the abomination desolation has to happen in the temple. So there has to be a temple. Now, it was not the millennial temple. That's a different thing. But yeah, so at some point, a temple has to be rebuilt. A temple for the people of Israel. A temple meant for the worship of Yahweh God. So it has to be rebuilt at some point. Yeah. Good question. Is this, I don't know, is this exciting to you guys? I, I love this stuff, you know? <laughs> I, I mean, it's, and, and then you just think about, like, doesn't it make God, like, I mean, not that God's not already big in your mind and powerful and mighty, but just, like, that, that he can redeem. I mean, I was, I was talking to Craig about that earlier. When I think of the new heavens and the new earth, my, my natural thought is just he'll destroy all this and make everything new, right? But I just don't think the Bible reads that way. How much greater a God who can redeem something that is impossible to redeem, something that is unholy, something that is broken, something that is just corrupt with sin, and make it holy and new, you know? I mean, that's just, to me, that is more mind-blowing than him being like, all right, sin done, we'll start a new earth. You know, it's like, uh, but I think that's what the Bible's all about. He will redeem it, and it will be perfect, and it's awesome. So, anyway, let me pray for us.